You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. You know, I don't know whether you appreciate it, but Acts 18 and Acts 19 occur across a four-year window. That's quite remarkable when you think about that. Four years compressed into two chapters. And they really are, brothers and sisters, a, a wonderful basis, an intensive part of Paul's work amongst the ecclesias of Corinth and Ephesus, and in contact with a glorious group of brethren and sisters. And we want to look at their characters this morning, and hopefully their examples will encourage us as we follow the examples of Paul, as he also was a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 18, Paul's in Corinth. And from verse 18 onwards, the particular justice of uh, Gallio, the ruler of Corinth, uh, allowed Paul to reside unmolested in Corinth and to continue the preaching of the gospel. But in verse 18, the time came now for Paul to leave Corinth. Uh, We we don't know what prompted this. Uh, We do know, of course, that the Spirit of God guided Paul's movements, and this may have been an occasion for the Spirit to say to Paul, "You, you need to move on. But there's another reason too, and that is is that he desired to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast. It's interesting, when you you look at Paul's life, brethren and sisters, you find in fact that that this Feast of Pentecost became a significant part of his life. What was Pentecost all about? Why, Why would Paul rush to be back to the Feast of Pentecost? Several times that happened. I think the answer lies in the fact that the Pentecost was the feast in which the diaspora came back from all of the dispersion of the Jewish world to Jerusalem to actually keep the feast of Pentecost. They couldn't do Passover because the the sailing routes were closed. But Pentecost was the ideal time for the diaspora to come back to Jerusalem. And of course Paul had numerous contacts in that world, didn't he? He had brethren and sisters, in fact, who were part of that diaspora. And I suspect that, in fact, he wanted to be there to, 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 in fact, welcome and embrace all those brethren and sisters that would come to the feast. And there, of course, gather information about how the ecclesias were doing. If he missed that feast, he would miss an opportunity of fellowship and and understanding how the brethren and sisters were faring. At this particular time, verse 18 says that he desired, desired to sail to Syria. Now, of course, Antioch was in Syria. Antioch was his home ecclesia. It was the base in which he left for preaching and then came back to give reports to that ecclesia and it was now time to return home. He'd been away for many years. He missed his brothers and sisters in Antioch. And it was now time to come back and to give them news of the grace of God in his labours. But at the end of verse 18, we learn that there was a couple that accompanied him, Priscilla and Aquila. You know, what an amazing couple these two were. They're introduced, actually, at the beginning of chapter 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. A very understated verse, because we learn from the epistle to the Corinthians that when Paul arrived in Corinth, it was with great fear, sadness of heart, he was alone, and in fact, he was quite depressed when he, when he arrived here in this city. Luke 
skips all that. But there in verse 2, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. How much is encapsulated in a couple of verses? He comes to Corinth alone, doesn't know a single soul in that city. Cast down, fearful, not sure what the future is going to hold. And he found a certain disciple. Now that word found is one of those lovely biblical words that has a deeper meaning than just discovered them. It's used, brothers and sisters, of people who are found of God. It's, it's the lost being found. He found them. Now there were many tent makers, doubtless, in Corinth. But the providence of God guided this man, Paul, to come in contact with this couple. This couple weren't believers. They were simply of the same trade. Now, I want you to think of the providence of Almighty God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in these circumstances. You see, Paul found out that these, or Aquila, came from Pontus. Now, now Pontus is on the shores of the Black Sea. This is northern Turkey. And this Jew moved by the providence of God, went to Rome. From Rome, he was thrown out of Rome because Claudius made sure all the Jews departed from Rome. So he had to give up his business, he had to give up his trade, his connections, and he ended up coming to, of all places, Corinth. There Paul found him. He was found of God. And now they're moving to Syria with Paul. They are a remarkable couple. Aquila, his name means eagle. Eagle, the symbol of the power of the Spirit of God, isn't it? Soaring in the heavens, that, that's Aquila. And his wife, the record says, was Priscilla. Priscilla, diminutive of Prisca in the Latin, means ancient or venerable. Venerable. She was well respected. And certainly in the truth of God, most certainly she was well respected. I want you to think, brothers and sisters, of God moving this couple around the empire. They followed Paul from Ephesus into Ephesus. They went from Ephesus back to Rome and Rome back to Ephesus, in fact, several occasions. Because the truth to them was, was absolutely everything. Now, now, you know how disruptive it is just to move house in the same state. You can imagine moving across countries. And you know, brothers and sisters, it really is a testimony to, to the sacrifices that this couple were prepared to make. And that brings us to the question, really, about our life in Christ. I mean, how much do we really deny ourselves and sacrifice things for our Lord and for the truth? We live in a very self-satisfied, comfortable society, don't we? And how much do we put ourselves out for the things of God? You know, sometimes when things are inconvenient for us in relation to truth, we tell people, look, it doesn't suit our plans at this time, or, or we can't fit in. Well, Brendan says, do you think a could of Priscilla were like that? Do, do you think that couple had that kind of disposition? Doesn't fit in to our life? They sacrificed everything as they moved around to, 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 to places where the truth was desperately needed. That's sacrificing your life for Christ. 
you know, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 19, we won't turn to that this morning, when Paul wrote his final letter, when all Asia had turned away from him, he asked Timothy to salute Prisca and Aquila. They were still there right at the very end. Their loyalty and their commitment never wavered. Demas has forsaken me. All Asia's turned from me. But greet Aquila and Priscilla. Faithful couple right to the very end. That consistency is remarkable. I'd like you to come to Romans chapter 16. Now in Romans chapter 16 we have this little window into the sacrifices of this couple. They always appear together. Always. Husband and wife team. Sometimes Priscilla's first, sometimes Aquila's first. Always together. Now in Romans chapter 16 and verse 3, Paul says this. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. The word helpers there means co-worker, fellow laborer. You know, when Paul worked with people, it wasn't through competition. It was through cooperation. And he elevated Aquila and Priscilla to be co-workers, that the work was together. Now, this wasn't Paul directing and Aquila and Priscilla doing. This was togetherness. Now, look at the next verse. Who have for my life laid down their own necks unto whom not only I give thanks, but unto also all the ecclesias of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the ecclesia that's in their house. Now, I want you to notice the plural. They laid down their own necks. And, and that's an expression of someone laying their necks down on the executioner's block. That's, that's the figure that Paul gives. Now, somehow, this couple, and we don't know the circumstances, had exposed themselves to some very hazardous dangers to save Paul's life. Husband and wife. No details are given for this brave incident, this courage. But they did it. And wherever they went in ecclesial life, brothers and sisters, they were known. And their self-sacrifice and commitment was known across the world because all the ecclesias of the Gentiles were aware of their selflessness, their courage and their commitment. Wherever they went, ah, Aquila and Priscilla, yes. Ah, Aquila and Priscilla, yes. And there was this tremendous sense of gratitude across the ecclesial world for this couple. And what they had lost in Rome through trade and business, they found the truth in Corinth. And when they finally got back to Rome, they had an ecclesia in their house. So God had prospered them to the extent that they had a large enough house to establish an ecclesia there in Rome. Rome would have had a number of small ecclesias around the place. Their hospitality was well known. Their sacrifice, their ability to draw people into their home was beyond measure. Let's come back to Acts 18. Faithful to the end, committed to the end, and the courage of husband and wife to lay down their necks for Paul, absolutely staggering. So in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. 
So the connection, it wasn't through the truth. Aquila and Priscilla hadn't found the truth when Paul found it. But you see, by their trade, by their craft, they were connected. And as I said, there would have been many tent makers in Corinth. But the problems of our Lord is driving Paul to meet this couple. And the record says, he abode with them. Now, now I, want you, I want you to picture this scene, brothers and sisters. He's alone in Corinth. He's looking for work because he has to support himself. On principle, he supports himself. So he's looking for work. And the Lord directs him to this couple. And not only do they give him a job, they give him a home. You see, they, he abode with them. They took him in. He had nowhere to stay. He had no accommodation. So he got a job and accommodation. How wonderful is our Lord in providing for Paul. Now, here is the point, brothers and sisters. He was in Corinth for 18 months. They looked after Paul for 18 months. Could you do that? Could I do that? Invite someone to our home for 18 months? He abode with them. And, and what it does is, is it demonstrates the, the warmth and hospitality of Aquila and Priscilla. Even after experiencing the hardship of having to uproot their business in Rome and re-establish themselves in Ephesus, they were prepared to give themselves to Paul. Everywhere they went, Ben sisters, lives were touched. They were, they were active, they were sensitive, they were faithful, they were hospitable, they were a wonderful example. And, you know, Ben sisters, not all of us are married. But whether we're single or, or, or whether we're married, we can have an impact on people's lives in a most influential way, in the small things that we do. And that couple had an enormous impact on Paul, Apollos, Timothy, had ecclesia in their home. Their influence was quietly and effectively powerful. And the record says in verse 3 that Paul wrought. And, you know, he, he, would, have, he would have been in their midst, brothers and sisters, describing his work ethic. And Paul's work ethic was very, very simple. He worked that others may preach. He worked that no one could make him accountable. He was working, brothers and sisters, to allow others to work in the truth. And, and, and this would have staggered a quarter percent as they saw this man laboring to support others, not being accountable to, to anybody in that sense working independently, that no one could accuse Paul of, of milking money from people. They wrought. And I think Quiddle would have been impressed with that, that, that work ethic, that ethos that Paul had. I hadn't seen that before. I hadn't seen that at all. Because by their occupation, they were tent makers. So, so I want you to think about how Paul's working. In fact, he said to the Thessalonians, or sorry, to the Corinthians, he says, he said, I was amongst you working with mine own hands. So it's a very labor-intensive kind of work. And what it involved was, was, was designing and measuring and cutting and sewing cloth and leather together, designing tents and making tents and making it all happen. It's a very intensive kind of work. But it allowed, of course, the, 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 uh, the person in that trade to talk to others as they're weaving and cutting and Measuring and designing. Tent makers. Well, that's prophetically symbolic, isn't it? Because Isaiah talks about the work of Christ expanding the tents across the Gentile world, loosening the ropes. 
it became, in fact, a symbol of his life, always on the move, always sojourning and being a stranger. Eighteen months they stayed with Paul, and then they went with him to Syria. That actually ended up in Ephesus, halfway across the journey. We also read a remarkable thing about Paul in verse 18, that he had shorn his head in Sencria, for he had a vow. This gives us another little window into the, the mind of the apostle. That word shorn actually doesn't mean to shave, it just means to cut. Okay, so he cut his hair. And, and it, it was uh, quite a well-known factor amongst some of the Jews in dispersion that, that after a particular period of time when that vow had completed, they, they cut their hair and they, they took that to Jerusalem and, the, and they burnt that upon the altar. It was a, the, the significance of the completion of that vow. Sencria was the, the port of Corinth that faced the east, so it was the natural direction that Paul was going to go, going eastward back to Antioch and Jerusalem. We, we don't know much about this particular vow. Some people think it's the Nazarite vow, but I don't think that could be the case because, you see, the Nazarite vow was not permitted to drink wine. And if that was the case, Paul could not take the emblems, could he? I think it was a private vow, brethren and sisters. And really, it gives a little window in the way in which Paul approached the law. You see, he said to the Corinthians, unto the Jews, I became a Jew that I may gain the Jews. So, so, so whatever Paul did, his aspect was, in fact, to win other people. Very selfless kind of thing, isn't it? To win other people to God. And, and this, this, this private vow was the way in which he actually kept the law. Now, he preached, in fact, that you cannot be saved by the law of Moses. You can't. This merit-based system is not the way in which salvation is wrought in God. Faith and grace are the key things, and the obedience of faith. But privately, privately, brethren and sisters, such some of the good principles and disciplines of the law he brought into his life. And here's one of them. He's not imposing this vow on anybody else. It's a very personal thing. Very personal indeed. And I think, brethren and sisters, that's what he did, that in, in this private capacity, on, on some of the, the disciplinary things that could could be beneficial to his spirituality. He kept them privately. He was accused in Corinth that he wasn't keeping the law. Well, he certainly preached that you couldn't be saved by the law, but those very private aspects were part of his life. So in verse 19, he arrives at Ephesus. He came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. <laughs> this is quite interesting. So they, they, they arrive by ship and they arrive at Ephesus. So Luke makes the point that he left Aquila and Priscilla somewhere in Ephesus and he himself went to the synagogue. And you think, why, why should Luke record that? I mean, I mean, what's significant about that? We know that Aquila and Priscilla would have loved to have gone to the synagogue. In fact, they were there when Apollos came. So, so, so 
leaves them in Ephesus, but he goes to the synagogue. Now, now, what is Luke saying? And I think that the most likely scenario is this, that Quill and Priscilla and Paul, they arrive in Ephesus. Again, they know nobody. It's brand new territory. Quill and Priscilla need to find somewhere to stay and, and to get some accommodation. And Paul only had the weekend in Ephesus. So, so they decided that, in fact, Quill and Priscilla would go and look for accommodation. That, that, that was an urgent need. You've got to, got to have someone to stay that night. But the other urgent need was to get to that synagogue and preach into the synagogue. And, and there was a division of labor here. And if that scenario is true, it, it, it demonstrates a, a, great, a great common sense, doesn't it, amongst these brethren and sisters. You know, they have a wonderful ideal, but they're, they're rooted in reality. And that practical wisdom, good old common sense, is something which in today's world is not so common. But, but that sensible reasoning, that, that, that practical illustration, is described by Paul elsewhere as a sound mind. It's practical, it's wise, and it's spiritual. And to get that combination right was how this team worked. Now, the thing about this visit to Ephesus was that it was entirely different to every other experience that Paul had had with the synagogues. They wanted him to come back. In verse 20, they desired him to tarry longer with them, but he consented not. But said, in bearing them farewell, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now this is most, most interesting. They want him back. Normally, Paul's experience in the synagogue is to be beaten, harassed, reviled, and the debate goes on and on, backwards and forwards between Paul and the Jews. Nothing like that in this meeting. Now, now you put yourself in the apostle's shoes. He's got a vow to keep. And he's got an audience that is desiring him to stay on and to listen to the word of God. Now, now what, what would you choose in that scenario? Would you, would you keep your vow in Jerusalem? Would you keep the promise that you made? Or, or would you yield to the desire of these people to hear the word of God? That's a difficult decision to make. But Paul said, the vow and the promise I've made to Almighty God is more significant. I will come back. I will come back. God willing, I will come back. But the promise that I've made, the vow that I've made, I must keep that. Now, what does that tell us about the Apostle Paul? He keeps his promises. He's, he's a man of integrity. He's a man of his word. And when he makes a promise and he makes a vow, he ensures that that promise is kept. How do we compare with that? Do we keep our promises? Our vows? This was significant to Paul. And even though he had the opportunity of staying in Ephesus and continuing the work of people who wanted to listen to the truth, that promise was far more significant. I must be in Jerusalem to keep this feast. It is quite remarkable that these are the priorities that the Apostle Paul gives in life. His integrity and his promise-keeping was significantly important. In the next few verses, we, 
we, we have a, a travelogue that is most unusual for Luke's record. I mean, Luke is going from Ephesus to Jerusalem to Antioch. He then tours quickly Galatia and back in Ephesus. Now, now normally Luke's travelogue would, would have us to give us the, all the details of that, the, the people that he met, the way he was amongst them. But all of that's omitted. In fact, the, the only suggestion at the end of verse 23 was that he was strengthening the disciples. Preaching is important, but so is strengthening the disciples. Can't leave new converts by themselves, and particularly those in Galatia who had gone through enormous stress with the Judaizer who was attempting to undermine the work of Paul. But, but, but that was his motive. Of, of all of the things that Luke records about this fleeting journey is that he was strengthening all the disciples. You know, it's, it's, it's a good disposition to have in ecclesial life, isn't it? I, I mean, are, are we a strengthener? Do we, do we bolster people's faith? Do, do we reinvigorate brethren sisters when we talk with them? Or are we the kind of people who hinders the growth of our brethren sisters? Are we the kind of person who disheartens others? Paul's disposition was a strengthening one. And, and, and that verb tells us an enormous enormous amount about the apostles' attitude to life in the truth. Building, edifying, encouraging, strengthening, sustaining, helping. And that certainly has to be our life too, doesn't it? The positive principles of the word of God and our own personal example to others can sustain and strengthen brothers and sisters. Or we can do the opposite. The choice is ours. To follow Paul as he followed Christ is to see the importance of strengthening. Now, whilst all that's going on in Turkey, which is the area of Galatia, the providence of Christ is moving another player into the arena. Now, this man, of course, is in verse 24, Apollos. He was a certain Jew almost a connection, isn't it, with verse 2. There was a certain Jew named Aquila. Here is a certain Jew named Apollos. And what an amazing man he was. He is an Egyptian Jew. Alexandria was on the coast of Egypt, had one of the most famous libraries in the world. It was a university educational city. Apollos was a, a product of that society. He was well-educated. He was an eloquent man, says verse 24, and mighty in the scriptures. And he comes to Ephesus. Now what possesses an individual to leave the confines of a university city and, and there's a, a very large Jewish population in, in that city? What makes him travel across to Ephesus? And to go into a synagogue and start preaching in the synagogue. I mean, this, this is like, like a, a mini Paul, isn't it? 
Well, the record tells us that in verse 25, he was instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. So, so, so what, what possesses an individual to, to leave Egypt and to go all the way to Ephesus and, and to instruct people in Ephesus in the synagogue? It can only be, brothers and sisters, a burning desire to be able to take what he has learnt, which is, in fact, the teaching of John the Baptist, and proselyte that and educate and strengthen his own brethren overseas. And he was powerful in it. That word eloquent means a man of letters and oratory. Mighty in the scriptures means powerful. He knew his Bible backwards. We don't know whether he personally had come in contact with John the Baptist or whether he was a disciple of John the Baptist through other converts. But look at the influence that John the Baptist had. 20 years later, outside the area of Judea is a powerful group of his disciples which are still affected by John's message. And John's message was revolutionary. It was powerful. It was so dramatic that virtually it turned Judea upside down in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. And his message was the way of the Lord. It was the message of Isaiah 40, his message of repentance. The kingdom of God is coming, repent. It was one of rebuke and education, and it, and it was dynamic. And that flooded across into Egypt and, and impelled a man like Apollos to leave Egypt and go and preach that doctrine to other people. So here he is in verse 26 speaking boldly in the synagogue. That's, that's, that's the language used of the Apostle Paul, who spoke boldly in the synagogue. And, and, and the boldness that, in fact, Apollos needed to have was because, you see, when John preached on the banks of the Jordan, when it came to the rulers, the scribes and Pharisees of the day, he was cutting in his condemnation of those people. Now, if Apollos took that message across to Ephesus, it was a very bold move because he condemned hypocrisy in the Jewish people. Now, someone's sitting in the audience. And in verse 26, it's Aquila and Priscilla. Now, I want you to notice that Aquila is not on the platform. He, he's not a speaker. He's in the audience with his wife. His wife certainly isn't on the platform either. Whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expanded unto him the way of God more perfectly. What a verse. They're in the audience, they're attentive, they're listening, and all of a sudden this man is invited they've never heard of before. And boy, the way he opened those scriptures. The oratory, the, the deaf way of bringing all those key points together, tying it up so powerfully, had deeply impressed Aquila Priscilla. But there was something missing in the message of Apollos. So what did they do? The record says they took him unto them. Weymouth says they took him home. Can you imagine that Apollos thundering forth, surrounded by Jews who, who were understanding his message, 
maybe congratulating him on his address, we don't know. And then all of a sudden, this couple come, Quill and Priscilla, very quietly, and say, love to have you home. They took him unto them. So husband and wife, together, speaking to Apollos, and expounding to him the way of God more perfectly. Aquila is not a man who's on the platform. But together as husband and wife in that home, Priscilla as well contributing to the discussion without undermining her husband, together they expounded, and the word means to expose and exhibit. He had powerfully expounded the scriptures and now they were to get a quiet exposition in the comfort of their home. Very quietly, very insistently, but very powerfully. And they expanded the way of God more perfectly. Now, now the way of God, that's the expression that Apollos was expanding. This is the way of the Lord of Isaiah chapter 40. And they just opened that up. See how they did that? They, that, that, they took common ground and they expanded that and filled in the blanks. Now, think about the promise of God. We have a mighty expositor of the scripture. Who would be the best person in all of the ecclesial world to be able to educate this powerful expositor? One would have thought it would have been Paul or James or Peter. But in the providence of Christ, it was just a couple in the home, just filling in the blanks, expounding the way of God more perfectly, and that's precisely what he needed. You see, it would take a bit of humility, wouldn't it, to have this extra instruction from this very quiet couple. And that was just the exposition he needed from just the right people. You know, God uses ordinary people in the eyes of the world to accomplish his great purpose. We don't have to be on the platform. We don't have to be prominent whether we're single or whether we're married, we can influence quietly and persistently in our homes, just expounding the way of God more perfectly, talking about the scripture, encouraging and building and uplifting, educating, enthusing. We can all do that, brothers and sisters. We can all do that. So, he now understands the missing piece of the puzzle. John had predicted the Messiah. John had spoken about the knowledge of salvation. And Aquila and Priscilla spoke about the anointing of Jesus Christ. He is salvation. <coughs> he is the way. He is the one that you need to focus on. And Apollos got it. He took the instruction. And in verse 27, when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly saying, showing by the scriptures, that Jesus was Christ. That's almost what Paul did after his conversion. It's almost like Apollos is just a, another reflection of the apostle Paul. 
And Luke's recording that, brethren and sisters, by, by allowing us to understand that the tremendous power of providence. Paul is, is away in Galatia. These things were happening outside his experience. And when this man was converted, Aquila and Priscilla would have said to him, well, well, where is the best place that we can use your encouragement and your skills? And they had just recently come from Achaia, Corinth. And so they sent him back to Corinth. And there, he helped them much. He's a helper. He's a strengthener. He's an encourager. He's an exhorter. Mightily working in the scriptures. He was so powerful that in fact, tragically, there were members of the Corinthian Ecclesia that began to almost produce a little fan club around him. A schism, a sect. And Apollos was highly embarrassed by that. When Paul actually wrote to the Corinthians, he, he said, look, I and Apollos are at one. I, I, I've, I've planted Apollos' water, but, but in the end, God has given the increase. And, and I, I earnestly besought Apollos to come back to you. And, and Apollos said, when, when I have a convenient season. See, Apollos got it. He, he understood that, that even though you can be mighty in the scriptures and people can rally around you, that's not what the truth is about. And he would not put himself back into that circumstances to, to inflame that kind of division in the ecclesia. When I have a convenient season, I'll come back, he said. There's a maturity there. Our Lord, brethren and sisters, works mightily amongst us in so many ways. Unseen, mostly. But it's our encouragement and our consistency and our sacrifice that can affect others. And God works providentially in that way as well. We come to remember him this morning. We see him in his glorious concern and care for the ecclesia working in our midst. And those wonderful examples of these kind of people, Paul, Quirin Priscilla, Apollos, one married, one single, but their cooperation in Christ, their humility, their energy, their, their selflessness, their, their care and their hospitality, all of these attributes, brothers and sisters, shine forth from this page. And they also shine forth from our Lord Jesus Christ. As we contemplate these examples and attempt to try and follow them in some small way, in that way, brothers and sisters, we can follow our Lord. And indeed, that is the way of God more perfectly. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. 
If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.